Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea, Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you turn back to this passage in Mark chapter 8, and just to ask this question really, what does being a disciple of Jesus really look like? What's it look like on a day-to-day basis? Because so often I think the way that we might think of discipleship is that, especially in the West perhaps, is that we all want to be, we want to be nice Christians, don't we? We like, like want to sing nice hymns in a nice church and then after church we want to go to a nice home and sleep a nice sleep and then wake up in the next morning and go to a nice job like everybody else until next Sunday rolls around. We want, to be, we want to be nice. If that's what discipleship has become to us, then the words of Jesus here in Mark chapter 8 send shockwaves right throughout our life and our church. What's all this talk about suffering and blood and death? and taking up crosses, and losing our soul, 
and Jesus being embarrassed by us on the last day. Because little of that seems nice. I think it's entirely possible to live in a country where we've lived for centuries with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, where we've had laws protecting us as Christians against persecution to become nice Christians with very little thought of what it actually means to live a life of discipleship. Perhaps our faith has become Disneyfied, where everything is to be happy and colorful and fun. Sorry, I had that word in my notes. I didn't say it because you said fun in your, in your thing. But everything is to be Disneyfied, where, where, where the grit and determination of ancient Christians has been resigned to the history books. It was for them in the first century. It was for the, the pioneer missionaries in ancient times. But for me, I just want a Disney faith. How often do we say, oh, it's a real burden to read God's word for five minutes a day. We have it tough, don't we? Five minutes? That much? In a day? If that's tough, how do we stand for the truths and the morals of Christianity and the scriptures in a culture that is completely antagonistic to those if we struggle with the tiny things, with the, the minor things, if you like, we get a sense of this desire of an easygoing faith here in Peter's rebuke of Jesus in verse 32. He had just proclaimed, hadn't he, that Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the hope of the nations, you're the king of the world. And yet it becomes apparent that the king that he thought Christ was was far different to who he actually was. Peter wanted a nice king who'd ride gently on a donkey into Jerusalem with a nice beaming smile on his face. And everybody would say, yes, here he is. And then he'd peacefully come in and he'd reign over the world and everything would be um, lovely. He hoped that the kingdom that he was about to join under this Christ would be marked by easy victories and a straightforward life free from troubles. How much of a shock must the words of Jesus have come to him? Verse 31, Jesus began to teach him and them that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed before he eventually rises again. Jesus is saying, my work as the king, you've proclaimed me the Christ, but this is my work. It will be marked not by colorful Happy Easter banners and bunnies, but by pain and suffering and death on a cross. And as he heard those words, Peter must have realized that if that's the life of the leader, then this has enormous implications for the life of the follower. If the king of the kingdom's life is like this, then what does this mean for me as a citizen of this kingdom? So in verse 32, he pulls Jesus aside and gives him a right ticking off. We don't want a suffering king and a painful kingdom. Jesus, why are you putting such depressive, hopeless words into our minds? Show some positivity. We won't suffer. 
Everything will be fine. It'll work out great. Everything will be nice. This is the kingdom that I want. I want a nice kingdom with a nice king and a nice life. But Jesus says that is satanic. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? Because a bloodless kingdom is a hopeless kingdom. A salvation without sacrifice is hell. And a victory without death is defeat. And so he tells Peter, Peter, you've got in your mind the things of men, not the things of God. You've got a very world-based idea of what a kingdom, the kingdom of God looks like. For scripture has always been plain that the way of salvation is the way of sacrifice and shame and scandal. And if you are to be my disciple, your life must be marked by the cross-shaped life that I myself have. As we end Mark chapter 8, and we've been doing this series on Mark, we haven't been in it for a little while, but as we end this series, this, as, as we end this chapter, is the central peak of Mark's gospel. And it's the explanation of who Christ is, why he has come, and what does it actually look like to follow the king? And that just as the king's life will be cruciform, cross-shaped, so must the disciples' lives be cruciform, cross-shaped. And so in verse 34, he tells all who gather around him, this is what true discipleship looks like. Whoever desires to come after me, let him, number one, deny himself. Number two, take up his cross. And number three, follow me. This is what following the king looks like, these three things. And then in verses 35 to 38, he gives four reasons, four motivations, if you like, of why they should follow Jesus in this way. So first of all, verse 34, what does true discipleship actually look like? Well, there, there is, I think, a, a quite a major misunderstanding in Christian circles of what a grace-based life really is. It's been a repetitive problem throughout the history of the church. And, it's, and the problem is this. It's this thought that because I am saved by grace alone, uh, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter what my life looks like after my salvation. I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by faith. And I'll uh, kept, I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. And one day I'll be in heaven by grace. And that is all true. The misunderstanding is not in those things, but in what is grace? Grace is sufficient to keep us to the end, but we're in great danger of forgetting this, that grace doesn't make us the Lord of our own life. Grace declares Jesus as Lord, King, Master. We are his subjects, his slaves, his children. 
that from the moment of conversion, we come under a new authority by grace. King self is deposed and King Jesus reigns. He sits on the throne of my heart, my life. The misunderstanding is this. Grace is often seen as a way to justify my ongoing life of sin. I'm saved by grace. By grace, I'll be in heaven. So don't worry too much about what your life looks like in practice. Grace justifies sin. Grace discourages you from living a life of obedience to Christ. Grace encourages us to live a careless, spiritual walk until one day by grace we'll get there anyway because we said a prayer when we were 11 years old. But as Titus 2 puts it, grace is the exact opposite to that. Grace, says Titus 2, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Grace teaches us, it says, to live self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives in this present age as we trust our Savior who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You see what grace does? Grace declares Christ is Lord, and it moves us towards obedience, not away from obedience. It moves us towards a passionate, Christ-focused, centered, reflecting life on earth. That's what grace is. Grace is not there to encourage an apathy towards sin. Grace is there to enable us to fight sin with every breath we have. Grace is there to enable us to reflect Christ well in areas where we struggle. Most of us, many of us, will have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was, he was involved, this, this is the character of the man, the pastor in Germany in, in the 30s and 1930s and 40s. He was involved in an attempted assassination plot against Hitler. That's the kind of fella this man was. And uh, he was caught, he was imprisoned, and eventually and killed, I think it was 1945. But he had the same issue in the church in Germany in, 19, in the 1930s, where there was this sense of cheap grace. Grace is going to get us to heaven, doesn't matter how he lives. And so he writes this book on discipleship. And in it, this is what he says. He contrasts cheap grace with costly grace. He says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, he says, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. You see, when we talk of grace, we should talk of this kingly rule of Christ that defines discipleship. Disney does not define discipleship. 
death does. The death of our Savior does. And it's this grace-centered lifestyle that Jesus is talking about here. If you want to know what a grace-centered lifestyle, a cross-centered Christian lifestyle looks like, this is what Jesus is describing in verse 34. He says, it will be a life of self-denial. Wow. We're not used to this talk, are we? Self-denial? It comes as a surprise to us, brought up in a culture as we are, that encourages the very reverse of that. In our culture, we are taught to self-define, self-exalt. Give yourself to every pleasure that you desire. No one else has the right to tell you what you should and shouldn't enjoy or how you should and shouldn't live. No, nobody else has the right to tell you that. But in the kingdom of Christ, the very first characteristic of a true disciple is you, you are so transformed by grace that you deny every, every control of self, every desire of self. You give yourself, body and soul, to Jesus Christ to do with as he pleases because he's the king and he's the maker and he's the savior and he's the Lord. Deny yourself. He says, if you want to you follow me, great. How do I do it? Deny yourself. Now, of course, those words can conjure up like these harsh, cold words of monastery life where you're going to sustain yourself for the rest of your life on, I don't know, cabbage and hot water. I, had, I have to be careful. I had cabbage for dinner. But <laughs> not just cabbage, by the way. There's more to it than that. But... But that self-denial, is that what it is? Going to live in a nunnery, in a monastery, or cabbage and hot water? Actually, self-denial is the truly wonderful life where we join ourselves to the will of the one who knows all things, the one who delights in us, the one who has loved us so much that he has given his own life to redeem us, to make us his own, the one who so desires that our life will be perfect, reflect, perfectly reflecting his, that he gave up everything to draw us to himself. This is a life of delighting in Christ, of declaring Jesus is Lord over every part of my mind, my desires, my actions, my loves and my hates. How do I understand this word denial? Well, the word denial, deny and denial is used a few times in Mark's gospel. And one of the ways it's used is to refer, of course, to Peter. And it's predicted a number of times that Peter will deny Jesus three times. And later on in Mark's gospel, we find him doing that very thing. Remember, he's sitting in a, uh, by a, a, a warm fire. He's warming himself on a cold evening. Jesus is being taken to trial and to death. This little servant girl comes to him. And she says to, she says to Peter, what she say? You were with the Nazarene, weren't you? You were with that Nazarene Jesus. And with oath, oaths and cursings, Peter says, I have nothing to do with that man. He's, he's not my king. He's not my Lord. I, I don't know him. I, I don't follow him. 
his denial was an attempt to disassociate himself with Jesus, to, to bring a separation. No, I, my identity is not wrapped up with his. I'm nothing to do with him. That's what the word deny means. It's to disassociate from, it's to push away from, it's to denounce, it's to make someone lower. Say, no, no, nothing to me, nothing to me. So when Jesus is saying here that a disciple must deny themselves, this is what he's getting at. We must do the reverse of what Peter did. He, he denied Jesus and accepted himself. But a disciple must deny themselves and accept Jesus. To say, I'm not Lord, he is. Are you with him? Yeah, I'm with him. With the Nazarene, I am. Not with me. I, I don't self-identify. I don't give myself to what I want. I'm not king of my life. He is the Nazarene. A life of self-denial is being willing to be identified as Christ's disciples with everything that that entails, to say to the world, the whole world, Jesus reigns over me. But you follow that book of Jesus, it's out of date. What, why? All those old traditional morals, and we've moved on beyond that, you're on the wrong side of history. No, I'm, I'm a book follower, I'm a Bible follower. I follow the king of the book. But, but you're out of date. I believe in the son who was and is and is to come. He is history. I'm never out on the wrong side of history because I'm with him. You see Peter doing that reverse of that. I've nothing to do with Jesus. I am my own man. Discipleship is saying, no, I'm not my king. I am Jesus's man. I'm Jesus's woman. I follow his commands. So this is not a monk's life or a nun's life of asceticism. It's not denying the joys of creation and companionship. None of that. Rather, it's the declaration of who is now really in charge of my life. And that is joined with the second declaration of Jesus. As he says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. These are, in effect, two sides of the same coin. Deny yourself, take up your cross. They're saying very similar things. Because to take up our cross is to show complete submission to someone who is now in utter charge of my life. We see this in the way that the word cross is used um, through Roman times and the scripture. You remember how someone's been found guilty of a, of a crime, and they, they were sent to death on a cross. And the judge says, you have to take that cross beam there. The stake is already up on the hill, and you have to carry the instrument of your own death to your place of death, where you will be hung until you're dead. Imagine that. It's this... I, I am not in control of my life anymore. I have no control. I'm utterly in submission to this judge. So much so that I have to dig my own grave. I have to carry my own death 
until I get to my death. It's, it's a graphic way for Jesus to describe the life of a disciple. Graphic. It's saying, I am utterly and completely not my own anymore. I have no authority in my life to tell myself what I should and shouldn't do. There's nothing left. I'm dead to self. I belong to the king. For him to tell me how high to jump, when to jump, when not to jump, to follow him in absolute submission. I am now dead to myself. My life is not my own. I belong body and soul to another. And it's this graphic language that became a, a part of the apostles' vocabulary throughout the epistles as they look back on these words of Jesus and they said, this is who I am now. I am not my own. I am bought with a price, they wrote. It's, it's slavery language. I've been bought by a master. I don't belong to myself. I follow the will of my master. It's slavery language. I died with Christ, they said. Or as the Apostle Paul would fill it out later on in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death. There it is. That's discipleship. That's what it is in practice. Jesus says, um, it's quoted in other gospels, that we must take up our cross daily and follow him. That's what this is. It's every day waking up and saying, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm dead to sin. And whatever temptation, whatever desire comes my way that is in opposition to the will of the king, I denounce it today. I denounce it. I follow him. Now, of course, in any kingdom, the call to absolute submission to the leader is risky. I know that tonight we're not calling each other to something that is easy. It's something that is risky. It's something that is dangerous. We, I'm sure we watched the news recently, political news, where our own political leaders have brought to bear our own worst fears about what it means to live in a kingdom where our political leaders, they'll make laws, and they'll tell us all, you've got to do this, but this doesn't apply to me, and I live over here. This, I live my own life, and I'll tell you to live over here. They lead us down paths that they themselves are unwilling to take. But we need not fear in the kingdom of God. For the Christ has more than proved himself as a king who doesn't tell us to live in a way that he himself was unwilling to live. 
you know, we only discover whether our leaderships obey the laws as we go along under their authority. And we're appointed for a few years. And as the years go by, we go, mm, yes, no. They do and they don't live according to their own laws. But with this king, King Jesus, we look back at history, 2,000 years, and we see this 33-year life of absolute submission to his father's will. Going to a cross, literally denying himself, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Taking up his cross, carrying the crossbeam to his death, hanging on a cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Here is a leader who does not tell us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and says, yeah, but that's for you. My life is different. I'm the king. I, I live a life of ease and comfort, and you must sacrifice yourselves. No, we look to him and say, I want my life to reflect his life. I want to follow him. He has given me, he's not only redeemed me, he's not only been everything to me, but he's my perfect example as well on how to live the life of the kingdom. The call of the kingdom comes with the example of the one who called us to this way of life, this call of discipleship. Deny yourself. As you wake up in the morning, you take your frosties or toast and butter or whatever you have, my life today, denial, self-denial. I'm not my king. I'm not my king as I go to work. I'm not my king as I sit in the classroom. I am not the king. I'm not my king as I go to Tesco. I'm not my king. I live under his authority to reflect him today, to be as the moon is to the sun. His sunbeams will reflect off me into the dark night of the world. Deny myself. Take up my cross. and Follow the king of grace, the king of love. But why? Why should I do that? Well, Jesus here gives us four reasons, four motivations for following him. The first is, verse 35, The word for appears, not in all our versions, but the word for appears at the beginning of every single verse that follows. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Why? For, verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If we willingly give up our will, to follow God's will, it will mean everlasting life. That's discipleship. But if we live our lives avoiding the shame, avoiding the scandal of being a Christian, avoiding the suffering of the cross, we save our lives, we save our reputations, everybody in school and everybody in college and everybody in university and everybody at work, and all our neighbors say, what a wonderful person they are. Yeah, they go to church, but they don't really believe it. Wonderful. We save our lives, our reputations. It reveals that we have known nothing of grace, 
nothing of Jesus as King and Lord. It shows that we, we aren't redeemed. We aren't true disciples. This is anti-discipleship. This, this is a life of the lost and the perishing that is constantly concerned. What do my peers think? My friends think? I'll just do what they want to live an easy and smooth life. Jesus says, I want you all to be losers. I want you to be a loser in the eyes of the world. What a loser. Follow Jesus. You follow the ethics, teachings of that ancient book. What a loser. Leads to eternal life. You can be a winner now. You can live a self-fulfilling, self-absorbed, self-determining life. Jesus says it leads to being lost forever. Yeah, you, you win for a few decades, but you lose for millennia, for multiple millennia. And this, Jesus argues, means it's far better to lose out now and follow him than not. For in dying to self, in taking up our own cross, we know how it ends. How does all this end? How does it end when you take up a cross? Well, we know because Jesus had just told us, I must suffer. I must die. And I must rise again. You see, the, the path of suffering, the path of death, leads to resurrection. It leads to life. It leads to being with the Father. It leads to the home in heaven. That's where it ends. Lose and you'll win. Win and you lose. The second reason is found in verse 36. Why should I deny myself and take up my cross? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? We don't have to be an accountant for this. Profit margins and all that. Profit, loss, business. We all understand profit margins. I was given a pound pocket money for the month and I somehow spent one pound ten. So I borrowed some off my brother and my sister and I'm, oh, I've lost. I gained and I lost. I profited, but now I'm in debt. Jesus says, what's the profit margin? What's the profit margin if you should live a successful life? Live like a Russian oligarch? Sail the seven seas in your luxury yacht, live in the greatest mansions of the world, become a top-notch celebrity, loved and adored by millions, and then lose your soul? Have you profited or have you lost? What was the point in it all? You gained the world, but you've lost your soul. Is that a profit, really? It's, it's possible, isn't it, to become the greatest God-rejecting person ever written about in the history books. Everybody for all of time will look back and read about your life and say they were the A-list celebrity. They were well-known. They were rich and wealthy. While the unknown, Jesus-loving pensioner, doesn't even get a newspaper paragraph about their life. But who's better off? Who made the most profit? Sure, one can be known and loved for a thousand years, but the other one is known and loved forever. 
when thinking whether it's worth taking up a cross and denying ourselves and following Jesus, Jesus surprisingly asks us, think about the profit margins. Which brings the most profit? And then the third reason is in verse 37. Why should I deny myself and take up my cross for, literally says, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What a question that is. What are you willing to give in exchange for eternal glory with Christ? What are you willing to give? If someone offered you tonight whatever you wanted for your soul, what would be your bottom line? If you don't follow Jesus, I will give you anything you want. What would be the price? That you'd accept? What a question. What would you give in exchange for your eternal, never dying soul? What would be your price? And then, fourthly, Jesus asks in verse 38, uh, says in verse 38, a, third, a fourth reason why we should deny ourselves and take up our cross for. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Can I ask you a question? Are you too embarrassed of Jesus to stand up for him in school? It's just a bit embarrassing, isn't it? You're too ashamed to tell your work colleagues what you did yesterday when you go into work on Monday. Oh, just went out with some friends. The cross is a place of shame. Jesus hung there naked, bleeding, exposed on the cross. Everyone laughed at him. They all mocked his stupidity. How did you end up in a place like that? You could have saved your life if only you'd quietened down about all that Messiah thing and saving the world and all that. If you just stayed stum, didn't say a word, didn't have to do anything bad, just not speak up. Even his disciples, they, oh, yeah, not, not for me, not right now, too embarrassing. So why would we want to hang on a cross in our own communities? Why would we ever want to acknowledge that Jesus is my Lord and my King and I follow him and I do whatever he says in his word and I want you to do it as well because it's worth it because you lose your life now but you'll gain your soul. So friends in school, so work colleagues, come and join me in this humiliation, in this suffering, in this death. Come and join me. It's shameful to tell others about the gospel. The cross-centered life the grace-centered life, it's an embarrassing, it is embarrassing because people do mock and laugh and scorn and think you're a bit, you know, if you'd studied more in school, you wouldn't be so stupid if you'd ever studied science. But it's worth it because it means on the last day, the only one who really matters is not embarrassed by us. He's not ashamed of us on that day. Ashamed of Christ? 
then he'll be ashamed of us. Unashamed, he'll be unashamed. Now, I'm sure that as we sit here, we all are thinking in our heads, I failed. What a failure I am. So often I have not denied myself. I've not taken up my cross. I have been ashamed. Remember those times, even this last week? Didn't speak up. Slightly embarrassed. There is hope here, isn't there? Because this very one, Peter, says, you're the Christ. But, yeah, but don't suffer, will you? He goes on to do the reverse, as we've said of this. He says, I'm not going to deny myself. I'm going to deny Christ instead. I'm, I'm not going to be unashamed. I'm going to be a little bit embarrassed when that little girl asks me, do I believe in him? He denied him three times. And yet, I think Dylan preached that a couple of weeks back, or last week. What does Jesus do after his resurrection? He singles out Peter. Peter, come, come here. You denied me, didn't you? Yeah, how many times? Three times. You know what I said? If you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you. I remember. Do you remember I told you to deny yourself and not to deny me yet? What have you done? I denied you. I didn't deny myself. Do you love me? I do. Do you love me, Peter? I do. Do you love me? I do. You're forgiven. Come and come be restored. Come and come and enjoy my sweet fellowship. Yes, you failed. You failed at the crux point of history. At the worst possible moment, you failed. You weren't the disciple you ought to have been. But Jesus graciously reaccepts back into the fold and transforms him and renews him and says, I'm the resurrected Christ. I'll forgive you. I'll wash you clean in the blood I've shed when you were running away in the distance. And when I was praying for you, that the Father would forgive you. I will forgive you. And those that previously ashamed denier becomes the unashamed cross-taking apostle who stands through thick and thin, through persecution and suffering for Jesus wherever he went. Yes, failures and weak we may have been, but by the costly grace of the cross of Christ, he draws us once more this week to himself. He washes us clean once more and he sends us back out on Monday morning to take up our crosses and says, follow me. Follow me. And it's this heart desire that we will sing about now in our last hymn that says, it says, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow you.